into um, our time in God's Word this morning, okay? Uh, Pray with me as I transition into God's Word. Father, uh, we come before your Word right now as we continue our series, Disciple Makers in a Post-Christian World. Be with us now as we take heed and respond to your call for us to be disciples in a world where it's challenging to live for Christ. Help us, Lord, to live for you and equip us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, it's truly a joy to celebrate baptisms and the transfer of membership because what we're essentially celebrating is commitment. Commitment to Christ and commitment to the body of Christ. Commitment to live for Christ as his disciple maker and a commitment to contribute to equipping others to be disciple makers for Jesus Christ. Now, we are continuing our series, Disciple Makers in a Post-Christian World. We ex- and, and we decided this week, or I decided, and I asked Kevin if he would preach on November 27th. So thanks, Kevin, for taking an extra sermon. On November 27th, we've asked Kevin uh, to join our series, uh, and he's going to preach on, on, from his perspective of youth culture in regard to post-Christianity. So he'll, he'll think about a topic and a theme, but I think it's immensely important because as you've seen from uh, two of the brothers that he's baptized and even, uh, even Chester, who is a young adult now, but having gone through a, a formative uh, experience during his high school years, you can see that our brother Kevin and his team, they are really on the front line of that post-Christian generation. So we've asked Kevin uh, to come and preach as part of our series, and that'll be on November 27th. So we're going to extend, at least in the English, the congregational series by one week, and then we'll jump into our Advent series in the English. We'll jump in uh, one week late. We're going to start that on the first week of December. But in previous weeks, we've explained that by post-Christian, We're referring to a society that was historically built on Christian moral standards, but is now becoming more antagonistic toward Christianity, right? So by post-Christian, that's what we mean. We're talking about this cultural moment that we're entering in our nation where traditionally, historically, we were supposed to be, quote-unquote, a Christian nation. That, That doesn't mean that America was ever fully evangelical, but some Christian values were built into our founding culture, but now you're seeing more and more antagonism towards Christianity. In light of this growing hostility, how are we supposed to prepare for this antagonism towards Christian values? How should we live in response to this growing hostility? My argument today is that we must be humble truth tellers. We need to tell the truth with Christ-like humility. And that's precisely what I've entitled our message today, Humble Truth-Tellers. The Cambridge Dictionary defines truth-teller as someone who tells the truth, especially about what is really happening in a situation. Someone who tells the truth, especially about what's really happening in a situation. Right? You need to determine how to be wise in any situation when people ask you a question, will you tell the truth? In any situation. And that's what we're called to do. And it's harder and harder when there's antagonism and hostility. The temptations for us as Christians is to believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is real and even to believe in the Bible. But when it comes to giving an answer for what we believe, 
The temptation is to shy away or to not tell the whole truth because of the fear of cancel culture or the fear of societal shame. These things will tempt us to shy away from being truth tellers. People may ask you if you're religious or today it's more than that. They will ask you, since you are a Christian and we know that you're a Christian, what are your views? What do you really believe about gender, about sexuality, about marriage? What's your view on the sanctity of life? And those are just a few popular issues that we're going to talk about in our Sunday school class. But the temptation is to fade back from truth-telling, even for me. When people ask me, what do you do for a living? I can say, I'm a pastor. And that might be the end of the conversation right there. It gets awkward, and they're like, okay. Okay, so uh, what's next? Right? Or I can be slick, and I can, I can say, well, I work for a nonprofit organization. Makes me sound real good. Right? It's not 100% the truth. And then they ask, well, what do you do? I uh, counsel people. That's true. I help people with, you know, marriage issues, premarital issues. Oh, that sounds so noble. Right? But the truth is, if I tell them the truth, there's a stigma that comes of what I say. I would say I'm an ordained pastor in a Chinese heritage Southern Baptist church. Boom. Canceled. Canceled. I don't even have a chance to say, but our English congregation is multi-ethnic. I can't even say, yeah, 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 I know you hear this about the Southern Baptist Convention, but we're different. Not all Southern Baptist churches are corrupt or plagued with sexual abuse or cover-up of abuse, right? I, I mean, sometimes when we tell the truth, there's a fear of the stigma that comes with it. But we are tested to tell the truth. But here's the thing. Here's a text that encourages me. That I want you to take you today to a passage in Scripture that's written by the Apostle Peter. Why Peter? This is Peter writing in his old age. But Peter was once that young, enthusiastic disciple that said, Jesus, I'll die for you. But in the moment of persecution, in the moment where he is tempted and tested, he shies away. Now, we're not just talking about us who believe in the Bible. We're talking about Peter who talked to Jesus, experienced Jesus firsthand, an eyewitness to Jesus' miracles and his power, and who verbatim said to Jesus' face, I will die for you. And Peter, he denies Christ three times out of fear of persecution. In fact, he cursed the notion of knowing Christ. Now Peter, who has been humbled, Peter, who is not coming from this perspective of sitting on his high horse, someone who understands the pressure of cancel culture and shame. He's not coming to us and say, hey, shame on you guys. He's coming to you from a person who, is, who was shamed and humiliated, who failed to honor Christ, now much more mature. He writes to Christians in the early church who, is, who are about to suffer for their faith in the letter of 1 Peter, and he tells them, do not fear, honor Christ. You might not have seen him, Peter might say, but I saw him. I walked with him. I made the mistake. Don't make the mistake. He comes from that brokenness. And that's why Peter inspires me. 
He calls us. And so Peter is probably one of the best people to teach us today how should we respond to growing hostility and antagonism. You see, Peter, when he wrote 1 Peter, and I'll tell you where to look in a moment, he was writing to an audience who there was some social stigma, just like you and me. There were persecution uh, towards Christians, but he was preparing for them. I don't know if he knew, being inspired by the Spirit, what was coming. But soon after receiving Peter's letter, the audience that Peter was writing to would go through some of the most fierce persecution against the early church. Nero's persecution. The Roman emperor Nero was evil, notoriously known, notoriously known for persecuting Christians. And Peter's audience, they're receiving this letter prior to that persecution. And so he's preparing them for a growing antagonism that's about the heat is about to be turned up. Now, meet me now in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have God's word. Meet me now in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. And again, my argument is that we need to respond to growing Christless hostility by telling the truth with Christ-like humility. We respond to Christless hostility by truth-telling marked by Christ-like humility. We need to be humble truth-tellers. The first thing I want you to see, and this message is not expositional, it's topical. And so that's why point number one is going to ground us in the context. Do we have grounds to present this topic hermeneutically? I believe, yes, we do. Point number one is the truth-telling in the context of hostility. Truth-telling in the context of hostility. Look with me first at First Peter Chapter 3, verse 14. Now, the larger context of verses 13 to 17 speak of suffering for Christ. In fact, verses 18 to 22, the passage afterwards, speaks of Jesus Christ being vindicated for his righteous suffering, the power and the victory of Christ achieved through his suffering. So this entire section of 1 Peter speaks of persecution and hostility. That's the context. And it's in that context that we abstract our topical sermon. Verse 14. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, Peter gives us the context for suffering. This is not general suffering. He's not talking about suffering because of disease. He's not talking about suffering because you made a mistake. And so now you're suffering the consequences. He's talking about suffering as a result of pleasing Christ, of living with Christian values. Uh, that's what the righteousness stands for. And then he says, you will be blessed. Where is, where is Peter drawing this teaching from? He, the disciple, Peter, is drawing from his disciple maker, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, it was Jesus who said these very words. Jesus said, in Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, not for doing bad things. That's not the persecution he's talking about. He's saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. That's exactly what Peter's saying. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 of Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. The word revile means to insult you strongly. When people insult you, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for what? 
on Jesus' account, on my account. It's because you love Christ. It's because you want to live for Christ. And when people revile you and persecute you, Jesus says, blessed are you. And then in verse 12 of Matthew 5, it says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is what? Your reward is not on this earth. Your reward is not that you're going to get honored from this world or you're going to be delivered from persecution in this world. Your reward is not that you're going to be popular or that people are going to say, okay, we support you. It says your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who spoke the word of God who were before you. They will persecute you. Don't worry. Your, your, world, your reward is future. That's exactly what Peter's saying. Notice the future tense. You will be blessed. So some of you are thinking, well, I know this is an instant gratification culture, so Christians are part of this culture where we're looking for immediate deliverance. We're looking for immediate honor, immediate relief from growing antagonism. We don't want hostility. We don't want antagonism towards us. But the key is future orientation, a future-oriented hope. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed and Matthew 5 tells us, where is that blessing? Your reward is great in heaven. It won't be great on earth. You'll be canceled by this world. Your honor will come in the judgment throne room of God, where he declares you as righteous for final salvation and gives you the reward of Christ. So that's how we respond. That's the context. So point number one, truth-telling in the context of humility. Now, starting in point number two, we begin to see how we respond. How do we respond? Well, truth-telling requires Christ-honoring courage. We need courage. Truth-telling requires Christ-honoring courage. So we see in the context, now we see courage. We see this in the second part of verse 14 of 1 Peter chapter 3. I want you to notice the courage. It says, have no fear of them. So you know that we need to fear God. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. Well, well, Peter, how can I not have fear? You were afraid. You were troubled. Yes, Peter's saying, I'm not, coming from, I'm not coming from a position of pride. I'm coming from a position of brokenness and humility. I've been there. I failed. And I'm telling you, trust me, Christ will restore you. He will restore you, your, your courage. He will give you courage. Have no fear. Fear not, God says. I am with thee. No, be not dis- dismayed. Right? In any persecution, he will give you aid. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, so externally there's pressure, externally the culture is coming at you, challenging your beliefs and your values, but in your hearts, honor Christ. That's the Christ-honoring courage. It's not a bravado, it's not pride, it's not this, this thing where I'm not afraid of people. No, you got to be honest about your fears. you gotta, you got to go before God and say, it is fearful. I am afraid of losing my job. I am afraid of losing social credit and credibility. But in my heart, I come and I submit. Notice what it says. Honor Christ the Lord. Honor Christ the Lord. He's your master. He's your your disciple maker. Honor him as Lord in your heart as holy. What does the word holy mean? It means to be set apart. Meaning this world wants you to give in and they put pressure on you. 
But Christ has called you to be set apart. And your outward behavior begins with what happens in your heart. Conviction and the volition to be his disciples begins in your heart. And so in your hearts, set Christ apart as Lord. In your hearts, be set apart. And in the world, you will not be afraid to be set apart from the world. Now, where is Peter getting this from? Well, Peter's taking this from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 to 13, the prophet Isaiah, through the Lord, the Lord speaks to Isaiah. And so Isaiah speaks to Israel of the Old Testament. It says, do not call conspiracy. All that this people calls conspiracy. Right? Stop there for a second. Today, nowadays, everybody's saying conspiracy theory here, conspiracy theory here. And the word of God says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy because that's out of fear. Don't get into that. Trust God. It says, do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. So the world responds to societal pressure differently. Some, some people respond by saying, ooh, there's conspiracies against the truth. There's always conspiracies. Everyone is always conspiring against the truth. That's just part of it. But don't fall into that. Don't respond to fear with fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him, you shall honor as holy. Isn't that exactly what Peter is saying? Him, the Lord of hosts, and we know that's Jesus Christ, him you shall honor. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Don't fear man. Fear God. Fear God. This is basic wisdom 101 from the Bible. Fear the Lord. If you truly knew the Lord, if you truly saw the Lord, if you truly were reminded through Scripture who the Lord is, it's the world that needs to be afraid. Because the Lord is holy. He's set apart. He will deal with evil in His own way, in His own time. You fear not. What Peter does is he takes the words of the prophet Isaiah and he applies it to the Christians of his day. And by implication, we apply the words of Isaiah to us today. In other words, do not fear them. Fear, do not fear the things that the world fears. Fear God. Honor Him. Revere Him. Honor Christ. And so one key application of this is we have to be willing to seek the honor of Christ at the cost of worldly shame. At the cost of worldly shame. All of us have been through this. This began for me in high school. When up until my junior year, because I know some of you youth are sitting in here, but Kevin's going to tell the story much better in his context. You know, I was hanging out with the wrong people. I was not hanging out with Christ-honoring people. I did not go to the Christian club at school. But until Jesus saved me, he saved me my senior year, my faith was easily tested because it began with, hey, dude, you're a Christian now. You're kind of different. What, you don't hang out with us anymore? Well, I can't do what you guys do. But I, I still want to be your friend because I'm, because I love you. That's what the Bible says I should do, but I can't do what you do. And, and, and right there, there was this pressure. And so I, I began to see myself, maybe when I'm with my non-Christian friends, I'm acting a certain way. You guys know the story in your own life. But when I'm at church, I'm a certain way. And finally, the Lord said, Hanley, you got to turn. You got to turn. 
And then in college, when I felt called to ministry, I was ashamed to tell some of my friends when I would get together with other Christians who were studying pre-med or engineering, and, and they're like, well, what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, I, I feel called to be a pastor. So basically, you're going to be poor? Yeah, so I need 10% from all of you guys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but, but really, right, right there, I was like, oh, man. So I remember working at Sears, selling electronics, and, and they're like, yeah, you study the Bible? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, where do you go? Biola. What does that stand for? Biological Institute of Los Angeles. What is that? Uh, well, we study the highest technology of biology. Are you serious? No, it's Bible Institute of Los Angeles. You know, I'm always trying to sound smarter, always trying to sound not dumb, always trying to say, you know, I'm not going to be a pastor, but, you know, I knew my calling. And I think that's true for all of us, but in a different degree, right? That, that the Lord is just like Peter. Peter didn't get it overnight. He, he said all the right things in front of Jesus. And then when you put him into the world, he couldn't take it. But the Lord had to say, Peter, come back. Oh, Simon, Peter, Simon, Simon, come here. And after his resurrection, Jesus restores Peter. You know, church history, which we believe is true, says that at the end of Peter's life, they crucified him. They crucified his wife first. But when they took Peter to be crucified... He said, crucify me upside down, which means the blood rushes to your head immediately and you suffocate. It's like a painful death. He says, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to go out like my Savior. So you have the man who is a coward grow in his discipleship to the point where he says, I'm willing to be crucified upside down for Jesus Christ. Peter here is saying, you need courage. It takes time. You need courage. So that's the first thing, is the truth-telling requires courage. It requires courage, Christ-honoring courage. But thirdly, truth-telling requires a constant readiness to defend your hope. Constantly ready. You're constantly having to be prepared. Constant readiness. Notice in verse 15, the second part, it says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always being prepared means you're always ready at any time to defend the hope of the gospel. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I don't feel prepared. Well, that's where we want to equip you as disciple makers. It's okay. The beginning of preparation is humility. The first step is realizing, oh, I'm not as prepared as I should be. I need to be prepared. So you start preparing each day to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Now, the word defense is the Greek word apologia, which means to make an apology, like apologetics for the faith. But this is not an apology like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. That's not the apology. This, would, this is a defense of the faith, but it would apply on several fronts. First... In the early church, when they dragged Christians into the Roman courtroom and the court of law, Christians needed to make a, an official defense, like a lawyer, like a defense attorney. But that's not the only context. It, the second context is if, simply, if people simply ask you in a conversation, why do you believe what you believe as a Christian, you and I need to be lovingly able to explain what? Why we have hope. It's not a message of condemnation, it's a message of hope. Why do we have hope? 
Why do we have hope in Christ? Now, I want you, if you're getting afraid here, you're like, well, I don't know how. Look at the text carefully. It says, anyone who asks you. Now, this, this is different from evangelism, right? Their apologetics defense of the faith might involve evangelism. In evangelism, you truly are depending on the power of the Holy Spirit as you convey a truth to people. And sometimes when you evangelize, they don't want it. So, you know, you're speaking to someone. Other times, it's more of a relational context where you're evangelizing. This is when somebody actually asks you for a reason. And I'm sorry to say this, but nowadays people don't ask anymore. They just tell you, you're wrong. They just respond with outrage. So don't be afraid. This is not saying fight. There's other places in Scripture where it says it's not worth it to lose your testimony trying to argue. At that point, you become gracious, you become loving, you start praying. You're not ashamed. But it's very clear, if anyone asks you for a reason, be able to defend. Okay, be able to defend why you have hope. But if they don't ask you, then you're, you're ready, but you, you're going to use prayer. You're going to use relationship, but in the context of being a praying for people. And when, when in the context of that relationship, at a certain point, every apologetic presentation should turn to evangelism. But sometimes if people don't want it, you have to really, that's where you're praying for people, right? But that's a key. So anybody who's afraid, that's what I point them to. Look at what it says very carefully. Defense to not, you, this is not saying go around and start screaming at people, right? It's anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Because we believe that the Holy Spirit will send you people. The Holy Spirit in his timing will send you people to ask you, why do you believe what you believe? Will you be able to give them an answer that's not, well, let me bring you to my pastor. Then I'm your hope in life and death. Hey, can you give me a reason for your hope in life? Well, uh, I'm going to take you to my pastor. Hanley Lou is my hope in life and death. <laughs> Hanley Lou in life and death. That's heresy. That's heresy. Christ is your hope. You need to be able to defend him. Now, it gets easier because it does not require a seminary degree. What is this hope? What is this hope? Peter is very clear about what this hope is. The hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when somebody asks you, hey, you know about all this archaeological evidence for the flood, and you can actually say, I don't know the answer to that. But I want to talk to you about why I believe in, G in, in Jesus Christ. And it begins with the resurrection. Right? 1 Peter 1.3. This is the hope. This is the living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the hope that you and I need to be able to defend. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what is that hope? The hope is, is that no matter what happens to your body physically, you, are, you have a resurrected body. No matter what happens persecution-wise, if someone were to persecute you, even if they were to kill you, your hope is in the fact of a resurrection. And your ultimate hope when people judge you and persecute you is when Christ returns, you will be vindicated because that will be the final resurrection. The resurrection both has implications and application both for your present life and your future life. Your hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's very clear. That is the hope that you and I need to be able to defend. And, and I know there's different applications of the gospel, 
in the field of apologetics, but specifically here, it's talking about when people ask you why you believe, why you have hope in life, you point towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what? The gospel. That Jesus Christ died for my sin. I was lost. I was a sinner. That's, that's my hope. I was a sinner. I was lost. But Jesus Christ died for my sin. But unlike anybody else who said they're going to die for sin, unlike all the false messiahs, Jesus said that he would die for my sin and rise again, and he did rise again. Therefore, I believe that I'm forgiven because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ crucified and resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. That is the living hope that Peter is talking about. That's the hope. And remember this, hope, not hostility. Hope, not hostility. Hostility. When they're hostile towards you, speak hope. And that's why I said it's okay to draw back when you realize the conversation is getting intense and, and they're not interested in truly learning about Jesus Christ. They want to insult you. You receive it. You step away if possible, right? You, you step away if possible. But think hope, not hostility, because it's hope that's in you, not hostility. A lot of times when you and I think of defending the faith, we think, oh, we got to be defensive. But that's not what it's saying. Your defense of the faith needs to flow out of a spiritual discipline of self-control, and that's why it says you always have to be ready. You always have to be ready. Okay? You're always ready. And so in your heart, in your mind, you should rehearse. You should practice. If people were to ask you certain things about your faith, how would you respond? And if you can run yourself through those scenarios, you're preparing yourself, always being ready. I think of martial arts. When you take martial arts, they teach you, they, they actually teach you self-control and discipline. They don't teach you go out and, and be Bruce Lee or, or to be Chuck Norris, right? It's to go and, you know, kick everyone's head off. That's not what they teach you to do. They teach you self-control and they teach you, you use this only when you need to defend yourself. Now, the difference with martial arts and the arts of the gospel is when you share, you're not kicking people's heads off. But, but your apologetics, you need to determine when, how, practice. So just like in martial arts, I can't even kick high. You know, I'm not flexible. I got, you know, you're, whatever, you're practicing, right? You're, you're not really trying to hurt someone. You're practicing. You've got to practice sharing that hope in your small group, in your community group. you got to practice what it means conversationally. That's what our Sunday school is about. It, it, it's, it's modeling, Gabe and I modeling for you how to converse for people who ask for that hope and different topics and subjects. Practice, just like martial arts, so that you have self-control so when someone's hostile at you, you've rehearsed it. You're not caught off guard. And you know exactly when to draw back and when to push forward with prayer and the Holy Spirit. So that's the third thing. That's the third point. Okay, our third point is that truth-telling requires a constant readiness to defend your hope, not hostility in Christ, but your hope. The fourth is truth-telling must be conducted with humility and reverence. Truth-telling must be conducted with humility and reverence. Conducted with humility and reverence. Now look at the last part of 15, of verse 15. It says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, so very clearly, before we get into the explanation, it says, when they revile your good behavior, 
So this is not talking about trying to burn down some uh, abortion clinic. That's not what this is talking about. That's not good behavior. That's not good behavior, right? This is not talking about going to a protest and getting violence with people, right? That's not good behavior, right? It's talking about when let them persecute you for being loving and kind and charitable and gracious and well-reasoned and well-thought-out. Let them slander you when your good behavior is for Christ. That's the context, very clearly. Then, the, then let them be put to shame. Let them be canceled, not in the arena of the world, but in the arena of God's judgment. Right? You take their cancellation. You take it, receive it. Now, let's explain the text. The yet here is a qualifier. It says to defend the faith, yet there's a way to do it. There's a way where our defense, our truth-telling, is to be conducted, and it's with humility and reverence. This word, do it, is a command. It is a Nike imperative. Just do it, right? It's, no, I'm just it's an imperative. Do it. Now, the word gentleness can be translated as meekness, but here's where we're getting our title from. This is the idea of truth-telling with meekness, with humility. Now, here's what Wayne Grudem says. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says, quote, such witness must be given with gentleness, and of course, and with respect, but with gentleness, not attempting to overpower the person with the force of human personality or aggressiveness, but trusting the Holy Spirit himself to quietly persuade the listener. Now, I, I have to apply this because sometimes when I get into a conversation with someone who's asking me about Christian values or whether the Bible is true, it's easy for me to jump into my rational thinking and I want to out-argue them. And I'm tempted right there to, to out-argue them. And then the Lord reminds me through the Spirit, the purpose of defending your faith is not to, an attempt to overpower the person with the force of a human personality. It's not charisma. It's not aggressiveness. You need to trust who? The Holy Spirit himself to quietly persuade the listener. That's why it says when you do your defense of the faith, do it with gentleness, humility. Now, this word respect in the Greek is actually the same word used for fear, phobia, phobos, fear, which can be translated as reverence. In fact, the New American Standard 1995 translation says reverence, right? It says reverence instead of respect, gentleness and reverence. The Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, says gentleness and reverence. The New Revised Standard Bible uh, says gentleness and reverence. The King James and the New King James say meekness and fear, literal translation. That's the correct translation, fear, right? And so Peter has just taught us don't fear them. So the humility is to be directed at the people. But this fear is directed towards God. It is your view of God that, that allows you to be humble. It is because you fear God that you don't fear man, that you don't have to defend yourself. You can be loving in your defense. So our fear, our reverence is directed towards God. And obviously the ESV and the NIV, they say gentleness and respect. It is our reverence for God that would lead ideally to a respect for other people. But just so you understand, it is supposed to be, and most scholars will say that it is, the majority of scholars would say, it is a humility towards people 
but it's dictated by a reverence for God. In other words, a proper respect for man is built on a reverence for God. Your view of people will be dictated by your view of God. Right? So it would be proper to say we need to defend the faith with gentleness toward others and reverence for God. And the context of verse, we see in verse 16, it says, notice it says, having a good conscience. That's your standing before God. Having a good conscience. Conscience is an inner faculty. Conscience leads you to action. Conscience is the arena where the Holy Spirit works. You know what I'm saying sometimes when you say something mean and then you walk away as a Christian and this thought comes in your head and your heart and says, hey, that was wrong, you need to apologize and you feel bad for it, you feel convicted that you need to go back and do the right thing, that's the Holy Spirit working in your heart in the arena of the conscience. So the conscience is, is directed towards God. This is where the Spirit will remind you, hey, you need to be humble because you were once an evil sinner. And apart from God's grace, you would have hostility towards God. So don't be hostile towards this person who's attacking you. Be humble towards them. Be loving because you too needed the grace of God. And God showed you grace. And that's why your eyes have been opened. Pray for the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. Right? And then in verse 16, it says, it tells us why. Why we need to defend, the, defend our faith or, or do truth-telling with humility and reverence. Why must we communicate with humility and reverence? It says, so that. You see the so that in verse 16? That's what in the Greek we call a hina clause. It tells you a result. It says, when you are slandered so that... You evangelize, you defend the faith in this way so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Right? So when they insult you for being humble and loving and, and let them be shamed by society, that might be the case. It's less of the case today. But there was a time in our nation where even if you were a Christian, if you were simply kind and humble and loving, even the non-Christian would come to your defense. And they would say, hey, stop insulting this person. And they would say, I don't believe in his, his or her Jesus, but I do believe with how Jesus acted and conducted himself. And this Christian is loving like Jesus, so we'll give him that credit. Right? And then the, the non-Christian starts to defend you. That's not happening today in our, in our anti-post-Christian society. Even if you're kind and good, they will say, but still, you believe these Christian values. You're evil and oppressive. And so even more so, we need to fear God, not man. And we need to find our hope and our strength in Christ. Right? So that those who revile you will be put to shame, ultimately, not by our culture, but like I mentioned earlier, in the courtroom of God. When Jesus Christ returns to establish his living hope, on the, on the, upon his return, he will judge everyone. And in that courtroom, those who fail to believe, those who persecute Christians, if they don't come to repentance, God will deal with them then. In summary of our passage, our response to Christless hostility must be truth-telling with Christ-like hum humility. This is our big idea for today's message. It's honor Christ by being humble truth-tellers in an age that is hostile to Christianity. Honor Christ by being humble truth-tellers in an age that is hostile to Christianity. Where does this show up in our lives? First, this passage challenges us to constantly be prepared to make a defense for Christ. But nowhere 
Nowhere, nowhere in this passage does it say that you need to go at this alone. Nowhere in this passage says that prepare by yourself. And so last week, we talked about our church family, and we talked about equipping parents as primary disciple makers. Parents, some of the people who will ask you why you believe will be your own children. Those might be some of the very first people that ask you, why do you believe this? Why do you believe that? Why should I believe this? Why do you hold to these values? You have to find a way to lovingly, humbly, gently, in a context of your parent-child relationship, speak to them. And I know it's hard, and that's where our community groups, you can equip each other. Pastor Terrence has established this ministry called Grade Level Parents. If you know, you know. Okay? And so that's where from the, from the youngest that you could have. So if you have a bunch of babies born in the same class, meaning they have the same graduating class, 2027 or 2050 or whatever it might be. <laughs> it's not 2050. You know, 2030 or something like that. That the parents from one years old, the same parents who go through church together are in connection with each other and they can resource each other. For every grade level, there's, a, there's a, a connection point for all the parents. And people who come to the church later on, they can join that connection point, right? So that's called grade-level parents where you ask each other, hey, my kid asked me this. My kid asked me that too. What did you tell them? Well, let's, let's, let's talk about this. Let's pray for each other, right? Because as your kids go through the same grade, they're going to be asking the same questions. The earlier we can resource each other, the better we will be equipped, I mentioned groups. I mentioned small groups and community groups. Community groups and small groups are designed to spur you on in your Christian walk where we can help each other constantly be prepared to defend the hope of Christ. That's natural in conversation. Hey, this person asked me this at work. What do I do? Well, let's talk about it as a group. Let's pray for you. And as we're praying for you, we're going to learn together how to answer this question together. How do we engage together? How do we go through these persecutions or these hard times together? And youth, there are some of you sitting in here today, there will be many times where if you say you're a Christian, you're, yes, you already know that. Your peers are going to ask you, why do you believe that? How can you believe that value? But sometimes you know, in a church like ours, with our trilingual uh, context, sometimes the people that you will need to be, give a defense to are your parents. Your parents. Your parents who say they're Christian, but they worship worldly success, and they want that of you. But you can't, you need to, but the Bible says, obey your parents. Remember, I was a former youth pastor for the first decade. So a lot of parents who now, their kids are unbelieving. They, those parents got what they wanted. They wanted their kids to prioritize academics and success, and their kids are very successful, but their kids don't believe in the Lord. But those were the same parents who were always challenging us, hey, you should cancel church on Friday night before SAT. Hey, you know, th th things aren't as important. Uh, so some of you youth, you can't talk to your parents the way that I just said. I'm their pastor. I'd love for them to come in, into my office and talk to me about it because I will work with them humbly, lovingly, begging them, pleading them, showing them examples to win them over, to prioritize Christ over academics. But for some of you, your parents, they're not in this congregation and so they're still coming from an Eastern Confucian worldview. World, world they don't understand the priority of disciple-making. So that's where our Chinese pastors are helping. But you may go home, and you, you have to obey your parents. So how do you do it? With humility 
and reverence for God that leads to respect for your parents. There's a way to respect your parents, to honor them, because you're witnessing to them, to show them why what you're telling them is more important. And you tell them, it's because of my belief in Jesus Christ that I believe my academics are to be stewarded well. But worldly success is not everything. It's not everything. It is not everything. Jesus Christ is everything. So some of you youth, you will have to give a defense to your parents. And one day I believe that your parents will come, come, come around when they see your maturity and your humility in Christ. Now, apply to everyone in every life stage. Our general Sunday school class is designed exactly for that, to give you a demonstration of how to engage conversationally with the non-Christian world. So we want to equip you to converse in a manner that displays humility and reverence. I'm going to end with this. Peter, the same Peter who's writing to, to his audience, and by extension, we received the words of Peter, the same Peter who denied Christ, the same Peter who was restored to Christ, the same Peter who would die for Christ in a painful death. He writes, Though you've not seen him, that's speaking to us. None of you have seen Jesus Christ face to face. We believe by faith. Look at what he, what he writes. Though you've not seen him, you love him. How many of you can say amen? How many of you guys can say amen? Though you've not seen him, you love him. Those brothers getting baptized, though they've not seen him, they love him. Those transferring their membership, sharing their testimony, though we've not seen him, we love him. But Peter says, I have. I've seen him, and I denied him. Don't make that mistake. Trust me. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, though you do not now see him, you still believe. You believe in him. Amen? We do not see him. But we, we still don't see him now. How many of you guys, 50 years of following Christ, you still believe? That's my confidence that if the world becomes more hostile, you'll still believe. It's, it's the real believers, the genuine believers. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you will be tested like Peter. There will be days where you might deny Christ out of fear. But when you go before the Lord, he will restore you. It says, though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible the world cannot understand. And filled with glory, Peter. I love Peter. Because I know he understands the pressure. And then it says, obtaining, verse 9, the outcome of your faith, the result, the product of your faith, it comes through refinement and the salvation of your souls. It's souls that's being saved. So though we do not see him, though we still not see him now, we believe in Christ, we rejoice in Christ. That's our living hope. If you don't have Christ this morning, I want to invite you to receive Christ. Jesus Christ came he died for your sins. If you trust in him, if you confess, Lord, I'm a sinner. I want to turn towards you, turn my heart towards you. That's what repentance means. Say, so I want to turn to you now, Christ. Respond to the call of Christ. Believe that he died for your sins and he rose again and he will 
forgive you and he will save you. And he won't just send you out on your own. He will start to equip you and train you so that the faith that you began to defend, the reason why you can tell the truth is because that truth is transforming you. It's transformed you. That truth, that word has become flesh in you. In the Gospels, Peter, he knew the truth, but he needed the truth to transform him. He needed the word to take on flesh in his life. So the reason why you'll be able to defend and the reason why you'll be always ready to give a defense for the truth that is in you because it's in you, it's transformed you, that's what the gospel does. It changes your life. That's the resurrection. If you want to receive Christ, I'll be at the back table. Would love to lead you through a salvation prayer to receive Christ and to plug you into the church. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. We need Christ. Lord, we need Christ crucified and resurrected. We pray, Lord, that Christ would transform our hearts. I want to pray for anybody in here today who does not know you yet as their personal Lord and Savior, that you would save them. Save them. I want to pray for all of us in every generation that you would train us, equip us by changing our lives so that we would be ready, always ready, to tell the truth with Christ-like humility and reverence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.